1: Welcome back to the Welsh History Podcast, episode 105, Second Class Citizens. Hey, and uh, you made it through, well, if you're listening to this as this was published, uh, we had a few months off as I had to do a lot of things during the summer, had to get a lot of things organized, took a few trips, and just didn't have time to record and research especially uh, stuff for the podcast, so... Welcome back. Uh, We're back at it for another season, as I call it. Uh, The focus of the next series of podcasts, I can't even tell you how many, uh, is going to focus on the period from the end of Welsh independence, basically from the beginning of the 1300s until uh, the end of the Tudor period. And we'll probably take some diversions through those periods, talking about specific subject headings, cover some different ideas that are taking shape. And and in fact, in this episode, we'll talk a little bit about one of those things, uh, which is the rise in urbanism. So welcome back. Glad you stuck with me and uh, look forward to continuing on with this series. Uh, so to get started. In 1300, the world that many of the Welsh had known Had remained relatively unchanged. They were largely in the control of marcher lords, as they would be for many years to come, but for some, the world had come crashing down. The end of independence in the Northwest had created a sense of loss. Bards and poets lamented that separation from their perceived independence and the loss of their last true prince, as it was called, and that would set the stage for much that would be seen as the seeds of the Glyndour revolt to come. But that was a hundred years away, and at this point, as much of what the Plantagenets would spend their time and treasure on would be instead focused on Scotland and eventually their old enemy in France. Meanwhile, the first real change came to Wales through the post-conquest was the end of the princes and the kings, Edward wanted no more challengers. Even his allies were removed from their former titles and simply became lords of the English monarchy. Edward himself sought to finalize the Welsh conversion by the slow removal of Welsh laws and Welsh boundaries. In law, English common law specifically, became a part of the Welsh system. In criminal justice, English common law was the only deciding factor. In other civil court laws, Welsh laws, at least for the time, were still only slightly or modestly changed for the Welsh population. English people remained under common law and were judged under that law separate of the Welsh law. However, things like inheritance laws, which had been different from the beginning, were modified to remove bastards from inheriting and limiting women to inheriting only when men could not inherit. So thus, Equality of inheritance was r- limited to only direct, legitimate descendants who were male, and, more to the point, slowly they were moving towards primogeniture as the option of choice. These changes today seem mild in our modern perspective, as most English-speaking world now lives under English common law in some form, since that period. But for Wales, it was a sharp departure from what had come before. If you were living in North Wales, this change must have rocked a few people. Certainly it would be a cultural shift you weren't necessarily prepared for. And yet the desire for stability would probably be quite strong at this point after years of uprisings revolts and wars. Certainly for the average commoner, the idea of patriotism is a sketchy one at this stage it's not the same as what we think it is now because nation states didn't really exist so the idea that you would be loyal to a nation was a lot more limited than i think the way we think of it these days and among all these things the statutes of wales or also called the statutes of Rutland, were able to create counties and shires in Wales, that would work like their English counterparts. The Welsh would no longer be a mass of cantriffs or kingdoms, but would be broken down into counties with sheriffs and English governance. Edward, after 1284, began castle-building an urbanization program to reinforce the rule of the English in Wales. In this, he was following the old Roman ideal about centralization of urban centers and forts dotting the countryside to maintain control. Wales of the 14th century would likely have had some continuity to the area of Roman Britain and the tribes that had previously ruled there. The reality of it was a lot of what the English were doing was adapting some of the Roman ideals about how you centralize control and centralize the population. And we're going to talk a little bit more about this. The post-Roman Britons were firmly displaced to some degree in the power structure. Few, if any, Welsh remained in the top of the political chain in Wales. Llewellyn and his possible heirs in Gwynedd were either captured, dead, or in permanent exile. That would end their line fully in less than a century. Powys remained one of the few areas where local rule remained, but largely they were at the whims of the king and would too fall into English structures within a short period of time through intermarriage. Edward formalized the conquest by naming his son the new Prince of Wales and merging the title into the English monarchy, likely as he would have done with the Scottish one had the conquest had been permanently established. Certainly he tried to marry into the Scottish monarchy at one point. One aspect of the conquest we do not talk about previously was the influx of immigrants from England and elsewhere in the Norman domain. Henry first brought Flemish over in South Wales to urbanize and control that area of Southwest Wales. Those experienced wool farmers were then moved from England, where they'd been set originally after there was an issue with drought and famine in their own Flemish area. They were then moved to an area around Rose, in the southern half of Pembrokeshire, on a modern map, this would include areas like Haverford West or Milford Haven. These settlers then began to dominate the area in the place of the Welsh, as the Welsh language itself had ceased in this area, and much of Welsh as a language ceased. And in this area, much of it became Anglicised, and this region would then be called Little England a pocket of English speakers and customs in the extreme south of Wales. The native population were either driven out, or were mostly dead, or possibly had fled the region. But when you consider that the land was prime farmland, and had heavily been a featured coastal settlement going back to the Neolithic period, it would be very unlikely that the Welsh were there had just voluntarily decided to leave. It makes much more sense, and most academics figure that there had to have been some reason behind it, usually either by force or by some sort of genocide. In other parts of the Welsh marches, many of the towns founded by the Normans became places where trade, shipping, and commerce flowed. Cardiff, Camarthen, and Montgomery began to grow and be legitimate points of entry into Wales. This would bring further immigration from, for those looking to capitalize on this stable land, or at least seemingly stable land. Welsh lords followed suit before and after the conquest. The towns of Welshpool, Lampeter, and Llanedos became important trading centers. While this went on, Edward's castle building created even more centers in Carnarvon, Puthely, Harlech, all became centers of military might in the former lands of Llewelyn. As these English towns developed, legislation was then established that excluded Welsh people from taking advantage of their proximity economically. The Welsh were excluded from being burgesses, in other words, holding offices in the borough, and could not trade freely in the town. On top of that, they were then forced to pay tolls that were normally charged to people not from the area. Effectively, native Welsh became foreigners in their own lands. This may have been seen by the English as a way to convert the Welsh to becoming more integrated and under control. These laws would be relaxed and then reenacted at the whims of monarchs and lords over the next 100 years, creating the seeds for the Glyndwr rebellion certainly the hardships that must have passed onto the average citizen of this former principality would have been harsh. By the beginning of the 14th century, there was over 100 towns in Wales, at the heart of which was Cardiff, which was at 2,000 was the biggest. The irony of a Norman-founded city on the heaps of a Roman administrative and military centre, now being the host of a capital in modern Wales, seems a little bit ironic these days. These small centres were tiny in comparison to their counterparts in England, but there's no mistaking the sense of Englishness about them. In the history of Wales, the farms of a cantriff were spread out. Holding of land was so divided in inheritance as to leave the landholders with ever-decreasing parcels of land, and this remained the case up until the 12th century as Wales itself was mostly a wild and rural place. Even Christianity and its Roman sensibilities had done little to change that tendency, and as we talked about a long time ago, the Celtic church was very much built up around the fact that they weren't dealing with central locations like they would have been in a post-Roman area gerald of wales contended the welsh do not live in towns villages or castles but lead a solitary existence deep in the woods they pay no attention to commerce shipping or industry the archbishop of canterbury peckham who we've talked about previously felt the best way to civilize the welsh was through the rise of urban centers this belief that the welsh were unruly barbarians would match well with some of the english court If you consider this stereotype, it is likely the basis that this concept that the Welsh preferred a rural lifestyle of their ancestors and yet were no more uncivil than the English. And the reality of it was, even if they did prefer that, much of the old ways were changing. Even the princes in Llewellyn's day... Did not live to those former standards or those former ideals. Towns, centres of military forts were starting to grow up all over Wales, even within the independent principality. The monetary changes in Wales, as trade and commerce began to dominate culturally, combined with an influx of upper class in society who were predominantly English. The old system itself, the one of barter and exchange, which had largely been the method since the loss of Roman citizenship, was starting to slowly ebb away. Now, you have to understand that when we talk about this, we're not saying that, you know, everybody went from trading their cow for two pigs or whatever to getting four groats and five pennies and a hay penny and that kind of thing. But... For the upper class, that was definitely the case. And for trade, that was definitely the case. If you're shipping outside of your local community, you need to do it through coinage. And that would definitely be something of importance to the community and had been important in the English standpoint for quite some time. This was something that had been missing from Wales. We talked about it one time that Roman coinage had been the last consistent coinage until the conquest. Once the Normans came in, that all, of course, changes, and it develops quite differently. The English version of the economy in the Middle Ages would have been something that would affect all levels of Welsh society, and then throw in that midst the concepts of racial separation and of being different. And you can see how this would create an envy and a desire to fit in for some. Those who may not have been advantaged under the chaos of the last 50 years might see the English method as offering stability. By 1340, Higden Higdon had, was said to believe that the North Welsh were taking to Englishness. He was convinced not by going to Wales to see for himself, but rather by those coming to Chester, where he was located. These would likely be merchants, or those seeking their fortune, who would Want to fit into the English system so that they could profit from it. There was also at this time a dysphoria of Welsh people moving away from Wales. And all of these people would look at the culture in England and be desiring to try and fit into it the best way you can. Much like immigrants these days coming from foreign countries will try to fit into the local culture. It's common sense. If you want to get ahead, you're going to have to sound like the other person. You're going to have to dress like the other person and you're going to have to do what the other person does. Otherwise you'll have a very difficult time of it and you end up in ethnic conclaves where you can only really talk to your local person from the same country or the same village and, that does you no good. And in England, which is very different and much more cosmopolitan, you might think at this paid stage. But keeping in mind, we're talking about the Middle Ages, so it's not that cosmopolitan. But this whole idea that there would be a prerequisite of English makes some sense and a prerequisite of fitting in. So of course, these people coming to Chester would look to Ranulf as if they were totally buying into the agenda of the English, and totally becoming English themselves. Now, if you go back to the rest of Wales, is that the case? Very unlikely. But nonetheless, that's kind of the perception. At the center of the growing discontent in Wales in the 14th century, which would blaze into open rebellion at the beginning of the 15th, was the continuation of the discrimination of the Welsh by English lords, sheriffs, and burgesses across communities in Wales. As mentioned earlier, the political discrimination was matched with an economic one. Effectively, as decided by Edward, native Welsh were held responsible for the expense of the English conquest. They were taxed more, kept away from the markets so that they might compete with English interests, and generally treated as second-class citizens in their own land. The fact that the English felt that this would contain the Welsh desire for national determination shows what I can only call a complete lack of understanding of the Welsh and what drove them to oppose the English so often since the settlement of Alfred, and which of course put them under the English hegemony in the first place. However, scholars have pointed out that while the Welsh were increasingly marginalized, their English commoner counterparts who moved to these towns under the control of the Marcher Lords were treated almost as bad at points. Because the power of the lords wielded meant that they could take as much advantage from the urban centers as from the rural periphery, and likely it would be cheaper, easier, and more convenient profit. And so trying to track down a local farmer out in the rural country compared to tracking down, you know, 500 people in a small village, a little bit easier. And of course, that meant that they took advantage of them no matter what at factormeals.com slash welshhistorypod50 to get 50% off your first box, plus 20% off your next box while your subscription is active.
0: I'm Ken Harbaugh, host of the new Medal of Honor podcast from Evergreen Podcasts, brought to you in partnership with the National Medal of Honor Museum. In each three-minute episode, we'll learn about a different service member who distinguished him or herself through an act of valor, a Civil War Army doctor, and the only woman to receive the Medal of Honor so far. Learn about these heroes and more wherever you get your podcasts.
1: Background or culture they came from. In 1290, for example, the upper-class citizens of Pembroke appealed to the crown to offer relief from a seizure of land, money, and titles by the lord, who seemingly did so in ways that were considered arbitrary by those in positions of authority. The burgesses of Pembroke won their appeal twenty years later. Lords and knights and others in the gentry were not only after the Welsh, but they wanted to profit in all ways. And in an era where your monarch and your liege lord were often fighting for years or decades at a time, the cost of this constant warfare, expansion, and further conflict meant that the English crown and its nobility were in a constant state of looking for ways to enrich themselves and fund their military. The building program of Edward's in Wales in this period after the conquest would be an obvious example of the cost of taking over such a large and difficult to govern territory, and someone was going to have to pay for this, and rarely did the nobility want to do that. The changes after the conquest brought to Wales an English rule of law, economic structures, and cultural urbanization, all the while trying to restrict them from benefiting from those same demands, put pressures on the Welsh and At times, they were fairly consistent in acting out in one of two ways. One was, of course, or three ways. One would be to give in, blend in, cause no trouble, get on with it. Maybe this is no different than what you were dealing with before. Uh, Second one, obviously, would be that they would leave because it would be better to get away from it. Even if you're a Welshman speaking Welsh who maybe doesn't know English, you might do better moving to other places like France, Scotland, and into England itself. And finally, of course, you would look for ways to deal with it in revolts, uprising against local ministers, uh, attacking the local Burgess, or you know, basically causing what we would consider to be terrorism in this day and age. These kind of things would start to take off, as would robbery and highwaymen and all of those other things that would come along in this period. I mean, this is an era which brings us the stories of Robin Hood. So this wasn't just happening here. This was happening across all of the territory that the English controlled. And This is what happens when you overtax people and and create a burden on them and punish them for being different. It creates this kind of reaction. Uh, The Welsh towns at this stage in the mid-14th century were growing in size and stature, but they would not last. The arrival of the Black Death, wars and rebellions would take their toll on the urbanization of Wales. And in a way... This has much to do with the English desire to conformity and control as it does with thoughts of patriotism. The match of Glyndwr landed on some ready tinder. The one thing that we have not referred to much in this episode, and what I more or less would like to end off with, is while the conquest left the former principality under the English thumb, it seems to have had a strange effect on the Welsh there. Edward II, also known as Edward of Carnarvon, surprisingly had a great deal of sympathy from the place his father dominated. Now, I want to hesitantly point out that when I say this, it doesn't mean the entire population suddenly were supportive of him. It doesn't even mean that the majority of them were, but enough of a percentage that there was talk both in scholarly works and in other data that show that when the chips were down, the prince actually and king would flee to the principality which he'd been ruling from in 1301 for example at the age of 16 he was named the prince of wales firmly establishing the english monarchy to the former welsh title admittedly a title which had been achieved mostly at the acceptance of the king of england in the first place so why as the english heir obviously presumptively given a title Did Edward seem relatively popular in Wales? One academic suggests this may be because the Prince of Wales, Edward, took seriously the complaints of the people of this principality he ruled. He was presented a sympathetic face on the throne, something that had not been seen in Wales since the Norman Conquest. Certainly, that alone would have made him stand out. Add to this his conflicts with the Marcher Lords, who had been dealing harshly with their Welsh subjects to the point where a few rebellions had already broken out and in a few isolated cases had become fairly large, one can see how a regent who acts more in the Welsh interest gains the support of the Welsh over barons who are seeking their own portions of power. Roger Mortimer, of course, is a fairly powerful marcher lord at this time. He, of course, becomes even more powerful later, but he is one of the people who is being accused of having abused his power. When Queen Isabella and her lover Roger Mortimer overthrew Edward, he fled not to France or England but to Wales. Again, This shows that the support there was probably stronger in part of course, because his friend presumed possible lover, Hugh Dispenser, was living in Wales and was one of his father was one of the Marcher lords in South Wales, but yet even still it does point that there was some reason that he felt a need to go there his untimely death in 1327 would have him remembered unkindly in english history as the person who lost scotland and bungled away his kingdom while in wales he would be remembered at least slightly differently at the end of this mortimer would be set up as the earl of march the largest marcher lord holder in wales and set the road for conflict that would lead to Glyndor's revolt and eventually to the rise of the Welsh in the name of Tudor. And with that, I'd like to end the episode. I thank you guys all for listening. If uh, you want to learn more about what we do here at Distractions Media or more about the Welsh History Podcast, you can follow me on Twitter at Welsh History Pod, or you can follow us on facebook at facebook.com forward slash welsh history podcast uh you can find everything that we do at distractionsmedia.com and i'd encourage you to consider uh our patreon which is at patreon.com forged slash welsh history podcast certainly i will be putting up some videos over the next few days to try and uh, give you something to view and uh we'll talk about kind of where we're going And uh, until next time, everyone, take care, have a great day, and we'll see you next time. Bye! This has been a Distractions Media production,
0: and for everything we do, check out distractionsmedia.com. Coming up on 5-Minute News, I'm Anthony Davis.